G'day. Thanks for downloading the show. Osher here. Before we get to it, Kirk Docker's on the show today. Before we get to it, I may need to play an ad here because that helps us keep the lights on here at the show. It helps me pay the team. So if you hear an ad, thank you. You've helped me pay Andy and Rachel and Haley and Mike and Bree, everybody that helps me make this show. I don't make it by myself. If you don't hear an ad, pew, pew, lucky, lucky. Let's see what happens. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I really think that you can empathize with anyone's experience, even if it is on paper more full-on than yours. You know, like we had a big reaction to cheaters the other night. A lot of people, we did an episode on cheaters. People have cheated on their partner. And a lot of people had a lot of anger towards these people. How can they talk this way and blah, 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 blah. Um, how can they do that to someone? But at the end of the day, all these people are, are a group of people who have made a mistake. They've made a mistake and they've hurt someone in the process and then they've owned it and they've gone through the process of trying to heal it, trying to heal themselves and they've gone to therapy and done a whole lot of stuff to try and get through it. And um, I feel like saying to the audience, hang on, before you judge these people, have you never made a mistake in your whole life? And is there not something you can learn from someone who's made a huge mistake and how they've dealt with it? And that's what empathy is. That is documentary filmmaker and the creator of You Can't Ask That, Kirk Docker. And this is episode 385 of Better Than Yesterday. Welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osha Ginsberg. Thanks for being a part of the show. Really appreciate you being here. Thanks for downloading it. Your precious bandwidth, your precious bits and bytes and ones and zeros coming down, whatever digital pipeline that you have to get into your phone to listen to this podcast. Thank you so much. I'm glad you can be here. If you've never been here before, g'day. I'm Osha. I'm a TV host and an author and a podcasting guy and a, what else am I? I'm a soon-to-be MRI, MRI receiver for the 50th time on my fucking hip. <laughs> I live in Sydney, Australia with my wife, our two kids and our two stupid dogs. And um, I'm here every Monday and Friday 
every Monday I'm here with a guest, every Friday I'm here with you. And this podcast is just here to make today a little bit better than yesterday. Something you hear on the show, we'll do just that. There's 384 other episodes with an interview, and I don't know how many others where I'm here on a Friday. But yeah, thanks for everyone that uh, reached out about the boundaries episode from last week. Thank you so much. I do really appreciate it. While, while I've got you, if you, it would be really handy if um, if you like the show, if it does bring you value, if you consider leave a rating, leave a review. I'd really like that. Wherever you can rate and review this podcast, please do. And tell a friend. That would be really, really handy. I'd really appreciate that. Thank you so much. If you need to get in touch with me, send Osher email at gmail.com. So let me tell you about my guest today, Kirk Docker. He's a documentary filmmaker. He is the creator and executive producer of the landmark ABC TV series, You Can't Ask That. It's a pretty simple premise of a show, but it's a very complicated show to make. But that's why it's so beautiful and why it works. If you've never seen the show, you basically see a plain hung background, usually a white or off-white cloth, a person sat on a stool responding to a question that they have read out loud off a three by five card. That's it. But the people that sit on that stool are often people in our community that are generally misunderstood by the vast majority of people. Kirk has made, Kirk and the team have made episodes about cheaters, swingers, um, wheelchair users, ex-prisoners, people who've killed somebody, blind people, children of same-sex partners, um, former cult members, and um, there was also an episode about obsessive compulsive disorder, which I was very gratefully a part of. It is a simple yet very powerful show, and it goes a long way to demonstrate that even though we may be different in appearance or different in experience, we all want for the same things, and we are a lot more alike than you could possibly know. All six seasons of You Can't Ask That are up now streaming on iView, which is the uh, ABC in Australia, the Australian Broadcasting Commission. Where are they corporation now? I don't remember. They're streaming on iView, which is their digital platform. Or you can catch any one of the 32 international versions of the show. So fuck yeah, Kurt, good for you. Make that mailbox money. Nice one, man. It's a great format. It's perfect. I love it. And I was, I'm a fan of the show and to be asked to be on it was a huge honor. So enjoy this chat with the uh, legend and probably one of the greatest interviewers in our country, Kirk Docker. How are you doing today, Kirk? What's going on? Well, I'm fantastic because we've got this new puppy. It's a border terrier and it's nine weeks old and we have a, a, a cat as well. So we're a happy little family of my girlfriend and my dog and my cat and myself. And um, we don't have any kids. So suddenly you're like, oh, right, you have to get up at a certain time and you've got to take them out to toilet and all these little things. And it was a beautiful day here in Sydney today. And normally what I would do on a day like this is maybe go to icebergs and have a sauna and go for a bike ride or something like that. But no, I'm, I'm in with a puppy doing uh, sitting, laying, all these sorts of things. But it's, it's a joy to have a little uh, bit of fresh life in the house. It's pretty special. It's a lovely thing. And it's it's interesting, you know, because this is an interesting way in. Because as humans, I guess we anthropomorphize emotions a fair bit with animals, particularly pets or companion animals, and we are able to emotionally connect with a cat or a dog or a bird or or a fish or something you get at the pet store so much easier than we are another human being. You know, for some people, it's the only real emotional connection they're capable of, and I totally understand that. But it's a really special thing, isn't it, having a, an animal in the house? 
Yeah, and, you know, one of the things I'm really trying to do on my show the whole time is get someone to be themselves, drop the inhibitions, and speak honestly and openly. And I feel like when you watch people with their animals, it's a one time they do not care. You know, they'll use a funny voice, they'll run around with it, they'll tickle, they'll just lose these inhibitions with an animal in a way that they don't drop that shield necessarily with other people. And they do it very quickly. Um, you'll see someone who may be having a, a crappy day and the a dog will come up and give them a lot of love and boom, they'll, they'll drop those inhibitions, they'll drop those things and be themselves and be playful and all those things. So um, they draw this natural nature out of you that um, in humans we often don't get to see. Yeah, I always find it interesting in that people are, are, are so much more likely to donate to an animal shelter than donate to a human shelter. That's right. The, 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 in the bushfires a year or so ago, what really grabbed the world attention was the sheer volume of animals that were dying, and that was what really tipped people over the edge. So th- there's a vulnerability to animals. They can't do things without you. It is a partnership, and as we were talking to the, to the trainer yesterday, well, the breeder yesterday, she said that they want to protect you. So part of that early stage bond with them is showing that you don't need protection. And so that stops them. You know, when they feel like they've got to protect you all the time, that's where they become yappy or become, you know, barking at things because they feel like they've got to protect you as this owner. So as this owner, if you can establish early on, no, I'm here, I can stand the way, I will be your guardian as well, mm. you know, that's what will help this barking. So it's really interesting learning about this, these behavioural ways that, that they behave. And as you said, it's linked into how you behave. It is such a reflection, such a reflection of the owner because, and I'm getting this with, you know, hyperspeed with Wolf at the moment. It really is baby see, baby do. Hmm. And with the way we he learns at his Montessori school, it's very much about creating the space for him to exhibit his natural curiosity and his natural adaptability and his natural mimicry and his natural putting two unrelated ideas together to come up with a solution. Um, And by allowing him that space, those neural pathways knit and give him this kind of advantage, I guess, than traditional education. That's the theory anyway. And similarly Mm. with animals, exactly what you're saying. It's like if you take care of everything, dog doesn't know what to do you know dogs like it's like a dog needs to know its place dog needs to be able to go look i just need to do the dog part i need to do or the cat part i need to do that i I find it really interesting i learned a lot about humans when i lived with my first dog full time i was like oh right all right if we reward the thing that we don't like it keeps happening ah (laughs) (laughs) you know what's crazy is once you um are aware of dogs it's amazing how many there are around and how many different styles there are. They're everywhere, in every shape and every size at the moment. I think the uh, coronavirus meant that dog purchasing went through the roof. <laughs> and um, they are everywhere. It's interesting the neural pathway stuff. You watch the curiosity and you often hear about that, that psychedelics, I don't know if you talk about this stuff on your show, but the psychedelics idea of psychedelics is that it clears those neural pathways so that you can um, look mm. at the world with the freshness um, mm. that you may have lost. And it's quite interesting watching a puppy. They are all yeah. curiosity. They're, those neural pathways are definitely not formed yet. It's the one thing, Kirk, that I do, I guess I, I don't regret it, but I wonder what it would have been like because access to, I guess, measured doses of psilocybin and things like that only started happening after I got sober. It was very much like going to the forest and pick it and, you know, hit, <laughs> dip, your, dip your hand in the bucket and hopefully pull out a winning ticket. If not, hello, <laughs> psychosis. 
and I would very much, I've spoken to friends of mine who've done, you know, psychedelics as a part of a almost a shamanistic ceremony. Um, and that's not to say that, you know, we're all about crystals and, and, you know, sound healing, but it's very much about these things were they came to humans and the discovery of what we did with our brains happened within ceremony and and then the great benefit comes from being guided while using it and just don't take about a house party and go i saw humanity as ones like there's guidance about it and i've spoken with mates who've done it and yeah man i'm like fuck man i wish i had that chance before i got sober but i can't do that now and that's okay yeah i find all that stuff very interesting because you know if you look at some of the stuff they're talking about now with taking um psychedelics to deal with um fear of death to deal with depression to deal with um all sorts of addictions. A lot of that stuff is very linked into what we do on the show and what we're very interested in is this sort of understanding and having conversations around often stuff to do with mental illness and how your brain works, you know, suicidal nature and all these sort of things. So when you start having um, interest in this stuff in the conversations you have in your workplace, I suppose, if I think about my uh, the show as my workplace, then it starts just going into your normal life. And so a lot of the investigations around psychedelics is around understanding people's brains and some of the brains that I'm potentially speaking to. Were you the, I mean, we know you as the guy on telly who has brought it to this show, you can't ask that, that asks, I guess, you know, it does what it says on the tin, which is what I love. About, I love things that do what they say on the box. I really do. And you know, it's very, very much asking those questions that we, I guess, as a community have gone, well, we're just not going to go there. Were you that kid in high school, Kirk? Was I curious? Were you the kid that put your hand up and the teacher went, oh, docker? <laughs> no, I wasn't the annoying kid. I wasn't that guy at university that asked too many questions that you just wanted the class to end and you didn't want them to keep asking questions. I feel like that normally fell on the... Um, the shoulders of like the mature age student. They asked like that one too many questions when you wanted to leave the room. But I was definitely curious and I was definitely um, someone that sought out answers and I was definitely someone who was very, very aware. I think that part of how my brain works is that I'm very aware of things. And so I was very aware of my surroundings and when I didn't fit in and where I did fit in and, and, and I'm wanting to understand how the world works. So I was often a fish out of water in my life growing up. So when you're a fish out of water, you are hyper aware of the world. And I was also someone who took a lot of jobs and um, all sorts of different jobs. And when you're in those spaces too, you're often a fish out of water and you have to learn how to survive in different ways. You have to learn how to talk to people. You have to be aware of different sorts of people and how to get along with them. So I spent a lot of time trying to work out how to fit in in all different shapes and sizes. And I think that's where this sort of curiosity and asking things and working out how these conversations came from. When it did come, because I'm kind of interested in this because my eldest is, she's in her final year of high school. You went to RMIT, uh, you studied uh, Bachelor of Media and Communications, which would make you one of the, I don't know, four people I know that actually do something that they studied for <laughs> and certainly works in television and had studied it before they got into it. What was the decision-making process before, you know, applying to uni for you? Gosh, I was, I went to school in Melbourne, um, a boys' school, Trinity Grammar, and I got a scholarship there. I had a 50% scholarship. So I was already the sort of kid who was at the school that every other kid in the school um, came there from different circumstances from me. I didn't come from like a wealthy background and, you know, my parents had to really work hard for me to send me there. So I spent a lot of time trying to fit in there, especially early days. And I, I really gravitated towards a, a school teacher that did this project when we were at, at high school where we wrote a book as a class together. 
whatever it takes. We interview all different people. And part of my role on that was to go and do some publicity, you know, on Good Morning Australia. I went on Good Morning Australia with Bert Newton and uh, did some radio shows and, and a whole lot of stuff. And I, I sort of got a bit of a taste for this, I don't know, speaking about things, but doing something that, you know, creating something that mattered putting something into the world that could potentially make change. It all started really there at high school. Well, your, your time working with Bert, having him throw to Moira while John Foreman tinkled the ivories didn't give you that sense of satisfaction? <laughs> it was pretty fun going in and seeing Bert. You didn't know, like in the 90s, there wasn't many opportunities no. to be in the media. No. You know, there's no YouTube, there's no phones with cameras, there's nothing like to have any sort of see the inside of something was quite exciting. But for me, I really wanted to work in radio. I felt like that was something that excited me, uh, more so than maybe going on screen. But again, there weren't that many options. There was Triple M, there was Fox FM, there was maybe some ABC stuff. And then there was some um, community stuff. So really, I got to try it all out on Triple R in Melbourne. That's where I got to, ah. got to do it. And Triple R was where I had a radio show when I was at 18, 19, 20. I, um, I deal with a couple other blokes. And that was absolutely fantastic. And what was cool about that show was that you, you came in before someone and if someone else came after you, but they all had their own show. You know, it's like FBI in Sydney or PBS or Triple R. And there was this guy, this Chicken Mary show after me, Gary Young. He was the drummer from the Easy Beats. And um, every time he came in, he'd be like, how good were those guys? He'd give us the biggest rap. And it was a very exciting experience to, to put something out to the world and have someone come and give you a rap and get this sort of instant feedback by being on radio. And so that really excited me very, very early days was doing that sort of stuff. When you came out of RMIT, were you like, okay, I'm ready for my logie? Like, how did, what, were you aware of, like, if I'm going to have to do something here, I'm going to have to create it? Like, what, what was it? Were you, I mean, I only asked this because I, I just had knocks on the door for about 10 years. I never actually had to go out and create anything until everything vanished. And then I had to go, oh, fuck, I'm unemployed and I'm 40. I better make something. What, what was it like for you? It was very difficult, actually. You didn't really know what to do. I had no idea what I was to do. What I really found about uni at that point in time was the best thing I got out of it was it completely opened my eyes to the world. I was with people who were older than me, way more experienced than me. I had a mate going through a divorce, for God's sake, at 18 years old from a very sheltered background. I didn't understand. I didn't have friends going through things. So the best thing I got out of uni was expanding my network, which was something I didn't really understand. So I, expanding my network was a really important thing. But in terms of jobs, like I just didn't really even know what to do. And I realized quite a bit later that the one jobs were the people who just endlessly put their hand up at uni, just did everything, just got involved in everything. And I was partly that, but I was partly enjoying myself and, you know, learning about the world and having fun drinking and all those sorts of things. And so I didn't really go into the media at all. I couldn't work out a way in. I had my own camera. I used to shoot things for people and do little jobs, little freelance jobs. I'd make a video for Mitre 10 or I'd do something for a friend. I couldn't really find a way into the media world. And I went and worked for um, the Reach Foundation, which was um, Jim Steins' organisation in Victoria. And Jim Steins, for a national instance, an AFL football player who came from Ireland and started an organisation working with young people. And the nature of the work was to create a safe space where people of all backgrounds, all socioeconomics from the ages of 13 to 18 could sit and talk and be themselves and find out who they really were. So that was really where I got exposed to this type of conversation where the interview, I suppose, and, and I wasn't really interviewing that space, it was facilitating, wasn't about me. It was about the person sitting opposite. Your entire thing, what you're trying to do is help them grow. You're trying to ask questions with help 
and grow. And you're doing it in front of people. So it wasn't this one-on-one secret thing. You had to do it in front of a group of people and everyone in the room grew through this person grow. And it was finding these connections between people that you didn't think there were connections. It was learning how to communicate with people that were very, very different from yourself. Learning about energies, learning about the energy spectrum and where people sat along and how do I deal with someone who's an introvert if I'm an extrovert and all these sorts of things. So that's really where I went to after studying and I worked there for a good five or six years. That would have been absolutely fascinating for you because you've just kind of described when people ask me about interviewing. And I, and I have to say this, I've, I've been interviewed by a lot of people and as someone who's done nothing but interview people my entire career since 1994, I can be quite, uh, how do I put this, bordering from judgmental <laughs> to, <laughs> I can see the matrix in an interview process. I know enough about screenwriting that no movie's fun anymore. I'm like, here we are, five minutes in, save the cat, and then away we go. You know uh, you know what I'm saying? Like I know enough about how the, how the sausage is made. And so to be interviewed by you, what you've just described, was so extraordinarily obvious. You're very, very, very good at that. And I would say that I, I can agree with what you're, what you're talking about, and we talked about it with the, the babies and the dogs earlier. When it comes to interviewing, there's a difference between just going from the list of questions that you have written in front of you versus creating a safe space into which an answer will appear. And you get two very different results as far as an interview goes there. And that's exactly the the experience that I had with you because people don't quite realise, but on the episode of You Can't Ask That that I did with you, I think if you total it up, I might have made four minutes of the cut, maybe four and a half minutes of the cut. I think we chatted for 90 minutes at least. And so every person that you see on that show was probably spoken to for the same amount of time. It's a huge, extraordinary experience for you. But you started doing that, if I recall, you started doing that in the format known as the Vox Pop, the voice of the people. You worked on a show that Andrew Denton created called Hungry Beast, didn't you? Yeah. And that was really how I came into the way that I work in the media now. It was a call out in 2009 across the country. And what Andrew was looking to do after broke was to create a new type of current affairs show, getting up and coming media talent across the country and go, if I could put 15 young media people into a room together and say, make a current affairs show, whatever the hell you want to make, what would you do? And the idea was that we were all from digital native backgrounds. So I'd been creating some online content and the piece of content I submitted to him was where I'd gone into a, um, a high-rise commission flat in Victoria and Collingwood and I interviewed two addicts as they shot up heroin, one in a neck and, and one in his arm, and they talked through what the experience was like. And I sat there and I actually wanted to understand the experience because I felt like the sort of stuff that we were seeing, and this is 2006, 2007, still no YouTube, the sort of content we were seeing around this sort of stuff was you either saw the Herald Sun putting how many deaths had been or it was sort of glamorized on something like a Sopranos. You never really got to understand this. Yeah. So we were really curious about understanding sorts of experiences. And so this is the piece I submitted and worked on Hungry Beast. And so the Vox Pop was really that was about going out and getting a sense of how Australia thinks and, and, and what they believe in, in in 2009, 2010, but not ask things about politics or ask things where we're looking for opinion because typically um, the box pop is about the opinion there's something that's happened in the, in the news and they go out in the street and say well, what do you think about that thing that's just happened 
And that's a daunting thing for people to answer because they feel like they have to look smart. They have to say something interesting. They have to be, you know, intelligent. They don't want to screw it up. Whereas I was more interested in trying to understand people. And um, in some respects, we were inspired by Front Up, that show on SBS. The guy used to go out in the street and just interview someone walking down the street. Andrew Urban, amazing. Yeah, amazing show. And um, so that was sort of the inspiration. It's like, let's ask these universal questions. Ask anyone on the street, what do you fear? What was your favorite thing to play when you were a kid? What stresses you out? When have you let someone down? If you could do something again over in your life, what would you do? So you're asking these questions which every single person generally has an answer for. And what we wanted to do was cuddle these answers together to sort of show unified voice in a sense. You could look at someone from across the other side of the country and you could empathize with them. You could go, wow, you look so different from me, yet you said something that really resonated with me. And so that's what the point of this segment was, just to sort of show a snapshot of the country, but try and bridge the gap between people that we thought were so different from ourselves in actual fact they are. Uh, which is what I – it's kind of that it, the, the kernel of what you can't ask that does, which is not having a political opinion on something but just humanising the situation. And I do want to talk about that, but I think it would be remiss to not discuss that people often say, oh, you know, they go, oh my God, Channel V, which I'd, I'd started on. I can't believe what happened at Channel V in that, you know, it was a period of only about two or three years that we were all there. But the talent that came out of this incredibly concentrated period of production on camera, uh, myself, Jabba, James Matheson, Yumi Steins, off camera, people like Ben Richardson, who's now the head honcho of Viacom, uh, people like Jackie Riddell, Stuart Sabotic, Emma Barclay over in the UK, like incredible, incredible production talent came out of there. Hungry Beast was the same. It's like a, a who's who. Dan Elliott, Kirsten Drysdale, um, Veronica Milsom, Lewis Hobber, Mark Fennell, you. What was it about what was happening at Hungry Beast that just launched these people? Some other freaks too, like Pat Clare, who's won like a heap of Emmys for doing the opening titles of like True Detective and a whole lot of other Holy stuff. shit. He started on Hungry Beast? Really amazing. Yeah, it's a really amazing um, talent that came out of it. What was it? It's interesting. Partly I think we're all very driven. We're all sort of self-made in a, in a sense. In that late 2000s period, if you were coming through, you sort of understood what was changing with the online stuff and what existed in the traditional media. So we were on this cusp of this change. And there was a lot of fear at that time about, oh, my God, media's over, traditional media's dead. You know, this idea of a black credit card from the 80s, you could go and just spend anything on these 60-minute trips. What are we going to do? And so we, I think this group of people coming through actually saw it the other way. There was this amazing opportunity that we had these tools where suddenly we could be published and we could be noticed and we could make stuff that previously we couldn't and we couldn't have been noticed. So I think we're all dying to be noticed. We wanted to make something bigger than these sort of little channels that we were on. So coming together was just this, I suppose it was this amazing opportunity to be grasped with both hands. And we were working with what we called the silverback. So Andrew Denton was one, Anita Jacoby. There was a lot of affectionately known stuff in there, but they were affectionately known as the silverbacks. Andy Neal, who um, was the boss of Triple J in the 80s and was the, the series producer of Blah, 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 where Andrew Denton started. John Casimir, who created Grew and Transfer. So we had these incredible um, mentors as well. Uh, Chris Taylor from The Chase, a mentor on the show. So they threw all these resources at us too. And... Um, they allowed us just to create with no holds barred, but with this sort of silverback 
this influence on top where they helped us grow and achieve and make really, really good stuff. So I think part of it, we're just given an amazing opportunity just to have a crack and do what we wanted to do and didn't have someone over the top of us saying, can't do that. And now you find yourself in a semi-similar position. You are, you know, the creator, you're the executive producer of an incredibly successful television show. Do you try to pay it forward? Do you have young people around you that you try to silver back yourself? Do you try to just make the thing? I'll keep everyone away from you. I think that was the chaser always talk about that. It was in their contract that Andrew Jensen's job was to make sure they didn't have to take any meetings with dickheads. Like I said, I'll do all those. You just write. (laughs) Look, I think I've always been doing that, actually. I think that if you want to make interesting stuff, you've got to have people with you that are really different and diverse and different ages and different experiences. And that's been something I've been collecting talent, I think, my whole life to work with me. It's sort of this idea that if you collect really, really interesting people through your whole life to create stuff, you've got this sort of uber team that you can keep creating amazing stuff with. And people like making stuff with me and, and our collaborators because we make stuff that matters, that actually says something that tries to push boundaries, that tries to make people think in different ways. But talking of Channel V, for example, Marty Smiley, who's a oh, yeah. Channel V alumni from After You, yes. is someone that I worked with when he was 15 years old. I, I met him at Reach and I was making content. I got him in hosting little videos and from there, he went to Channel V. So it's something that identifying interesting, amazing talent is something that excites me. I I couldn't imagine I'll ever stop doing that. Not everyone's going to make a TV show, Kirk, but like, say, for example, I don't know, someone runs a pool cleaning business or someone's the manager of of a restaurant. Like, what's the best way that we can look after the people who are coming up behind us if we do find ourselves in a position of power in in a workplace? I think it's understanding what they have to bring. What's their unique value? that they will have ideas, opinions, they have seen stuff that you haven't. Like I really try and surround myself with people that are quite different from each other. So I don't try and get another version of me in there. I, you know, Josh Schmidt, who's my serious producer, I don't want another Josh Schmidt in there. So you're trying to find people who bring unique value to the team. And if they bring unique value to the team, then they can go for it because they have something that you haven't got anyway. The other thing is I quite like working in small teams. So you work in small teams then they just get just responsibility and if you give people responsibility like even my young producers who come in they have responsibility of producing two episodes on their own and i'm there to oversee and help and give guidance and ask questions but they just have the responsibility to do it and i think that's what jim gave me really early days at that reach was he gave way too much responsibility for how much skill we had and you had to learn on the job now he didn't give it to you if you didn't think that you could do it and that was the other thing too. You got that. You knew that you had that trust behind you, and you also had a sweet operator if you needed it to help come in and back you up. And so I feel like I hope I get to do that too. That I'm someone that is a really good operator behind them. I have their back, but let's give them responsibility and trust that they bring these unique skills to the table. Uh, it's fascinating. It's not rocket to quote Luke Heggie. It's not rocket surgery. Like I've I've had someone say that to me. You know, like I wouldn't have hired you if I didn't think you could do the job. Don't worry, go in there and have another go. And mm. it's just allowing the people to, like we said earlier, learn through discovery and just know that no, I'm here for a reason. It was very difficult for me to overcome that. <laughs> like, no, no, no. I'd like to understand, there was a meeting and my face was on a wall with about 10 other people and they all went, that guy. And that's the only reason I'm standing here. Like, they didn't do this for a favour, <laughs> you know, and that's very hard sometimes um, to take it on yourself. How did you 
I know people who have tried to get up shows on the ABC with varying degrees of success. It's a very tricky thing to do because it's a public broadcaster and there has to be sorts of justifications to actually commission such a thing. What was the pitch process like of trying to get, you can't ask that off the ground? Oh yeah, pitching, that's a hard game. Um, Trying to work out how to get something in front of someone. I suppose I'm in a beautiful space of hindsight now and um, having pitched lots of things and um, again, having varying success with them. One of the things I really realized in hindsight is timing is everything. I feel like timing is everything in life in general. If you are playing good tennis, your timing is good. If you hit a nice golf shot, it's because you've timed it correctly. If you want to strike up a conversation with someone in a random spot, you've got this certain window to start that conversation. If you miss that moment, your timing's out. And I feel like it's the same with pitching shows. I've pitched shows where it hasn't gone up and then six months later, you've seen something similar up and went, right, it just wasn't the right time or the person I was pitching to wasn't the right person. It doesn't mean it was a bad idea. And so that's one of the things I think I had to really get my head around was that if you pitch something didn't get up, it's not that it was a bad idea. Sometimes the timing isn't quite right. You haven't quite nailed that. You haven't quite got in front of the right person. So for me, I'd had a number of things which I feel like I'd pitched and the timing was slightly out. It hadn't quite worked. And um, one of those was we, we pitched a show based off those box pops. And the idea we did to SBS and it was sort of given a go-ahead and then it was turned around and it wasn't given a go-ahead. There was a change of commissioning editor or something like that. I can't remember what it was. And that idea was basically to travel around the country and box pop people I met in the street. When we found an interesting story, follow that person home and then film a story on that person. So then we actually pitched that show to the ABC because as timing turns out, I was at a launch of something. I was at a screening of a friend's show that they'd got up. And um, some of the ABC was there and they said, hey, we always loved your Vox Pops on the ABC. There's a little bit of Ivy money going at the moment and you should come in and talk to us. So we went in and we talked about this idea. And at the same time, um, we were working with John Casimir, who was from the Gruen. And uh, he and, and us, we'd been working on this idea together. And we also worked on this idea of you can't ask that simultaneously. And when this money was available at iView, they sort of gave us a chance to do both shows at the same time. So we sort of concurrently made You Can't Ask That and this other show, which was called Hello Stranger, at the same time, they were going to be 10, 10-minute episodes just to see what happened. And as we sort of one day shot one show, the next day shot the other show and pulled it all together, as we're editing it, putting these sort of edits together and showing the bosses at the ABC, we started going, I don't know how we're ever going to cut down transgender, eight people asking, answering all these amazing questions about what it means to be transgender. How are we going to cut this down to 10 minutes? There's no possible way. And um, that's when we got the feedback. You know what? It's going to be on iView. Make it as long as you want. So suddenly we had this to make it longer. When it became longer, it got seen around the ABC. And from there really is where it got commissioned. It got put on television. And from there we got commissioned into a show. So it was quite a lengthy process. It wasn't just like, here's the money and off you go. When it started to go, did you have at the core of your heart when you were standing, when you were interviewing people, when you were asking questions, this is what I want this show to be about? I, I want to try and just humanise people? Is that what, what it was starting from and you just kind of went from there no matter what the topic? It's always been like that. I think that's always been my style is to understand things. I'm more curious in understanding things than I am of judging things. And, um, you know, I get very, very excited about finding people that are weird and unusual that do things that are different. I remember meeting a couple 
at a, uh, a fetish expo back in the late 2000s. And um, they were a an older couple, sort of your mum and dad age, and they lived in a 24-hour-a-day master and slave relationship. And then, you know, I struck this conversation. They said, come around to my place and have a meeting. Let's see if we can work something out to film a little story. And I remember leaving that day after talking to them, they agreed to do it, and Paul and I collaborated at the time, and just being so excited that I had the chance to go into this unusual world that I didn't understand, not because it was freaky or strange or I had any judgment to it. I was just like so curious about understanding something that otherwise you wouldn't normally get this access to. So for me, I really see my interviews as being like, I have this incredible opportunity. Everyone throws around this word privilege all the time, but I do. I really have this chance where this person's sitting in front of me and I have their undivided attention for a couple of hours and I can just let my curiosity go wild and ask anything. So when you said before, I sit in front of you for 90 minutes, look, I have the 10 questions that are written from you can ask that the people send in, but everything else is in the moment. Everything else comes from what arises in the moment, the hooks, these little moments that spark, you know, people, you have them all the time and you have conversations with people. And I think most of the time in conversations, people are more waiting to talk than really listen to what someone says. But if you really listen to someone, they'll give you these little moments that you can go, oh, I could follow that path or I could follow that path or I could follow that path. And that very much excites me that I can have someone sitting in front of me throwing me these hooks and um, I can choose to follow any of them up. You've done, I can't imagine how many, it's got to be hundreds of these by now, sitting face-to-face with someone. Well, on You Can't Ask That, close to 600. Yeah. In the street, I reckon I've done probably three to 4,000 interviews in the street where I've just stopped someone that stood in front of me for 10, 15 minutes. So you have a unique perspective on what it is to be human, but I guess also what it is to be Australian. Do you ever, do you ever think that, that you have this window that the rest of society doesn't? Yeah, I do. I think that I've been very lucky to talk to a lot of people. I, I live in Redfern and I, why I love living in Redfern is it's got an incredible mixture of all sorts right there. And if you sit and have a coffee on the main street in Redfern, which I like to do in the mornings, most of the time I just like watching who walks past me because you straight away think every single person who walks past you and they walk past different paces and they've got different energies and all this sort of stuff. You think, wow, every single person who comes past me right now, they've got all this stuff going on for them. If I was to sit in front of them right now, they've got all this stuff and it could be incredible triumphs. They could have had some incredible success or they could have had a heartbreak or they could have had someone in their life die or they could be dealing with torment or they could be bored or whatever it is. And that's true for every single person. Um, It's not some magical thing if you have a label like OCD or a swinger or whatever it is that you're interesting suddenly. Everyone has it. And so my unique take on Australians is that really everyone has a whole lot of things that they need to express about. A lot of people have a lot of trauma And that was one of the things I got from speaking to people in the street. A lot of people have a lot of trauma from being young, from being kids that they carry. And a lot of people don't have the chance to open up about it and tell people about it, get past the superficial nature of our lives and get into something real. And people are dying to get past that. You've spoken to Australians, you know, in the time that you've made the show. Do you you see us that we've changed in any way? Hmm. I think you've got to understand that in the last five years, I've spoken to people who are generally misunderstood, marginalised. Mm. They aren't typically listened to. What I feel like that's been happening in the last five years is 
that there is a change, there is a shift in people being understood, that people are being listened to, that we are seeing faces in our media on television that you don't typically get to see, that there is a shift towards understanding uh, people who are different from ourselves. So I feel like that's true. I don't think that's necessarily reflected in the way that our governments act, but I feel like that a lot of organisations are really being aware of differences that exist and, and being accepting of that. And so people are feeling more comfortable to come and talk about that stuff and feeling more, um, ha- having more courage to go, hang on, I'm this thing now and this used to be so strange and so weird, but it isn't. And feeling much more comfortable to put their hand up and put that out there, I think, than what there was maybe five years ago. Some things were weird or strange or so different from themselves, a feeling that that is not the case anymore. But also that the generations are coming through are changing. So, you know, we're looking at Gen Zers now and they are accepting, you know, is different from the older generations. And so they are telling their parents, their boomer parents, hey, you can't talk this way and you can't act this way. And so it's, we're in a stage of turmoil at the moment about how people feel about the world. Part of me wants to think that this idea of othering, this idea of whether you are a swinger or you're an amputee or you have some sort of childhood trauma, this idea of othering, as a kid, I definitely remember that when it was written about or when it was on the telly. But if it was someone you knew or if it was someone nearby or it was in your community or someone you had interactions with face-to-face, no, that was just, you know, John from down the road. Do, do you think that this whole concept of othering within our community is a, shall we put it, a, a symptom of the business models of, of, of newspapers and television? I think that a lot of it is to do with people feeling insecure about who they are and feeling like whether it's they learning that from the media, whether they're learning that from social, like social media obviously has a lot to answer for and, and mobile phones, this lack of community, this sort of striving for being these individuals where no one cares about anything but themselves and they're so focused on themselves and achieving and doing things and doing 50 things on the weekend and having all this amazing life because we can. I feel like that has a lot to answer for. And I think at the moment what's really hard is that there's this sort of comparison of experience. You've had a really bad experience, you know, on the surface, whether it's something to do with um, sexual assault or something to do with being other in some other way or whatever. And if we haven't had that experience, then we have no idea what it's like to experience something really full on. Whereas I really think that you can empathize with anyone's experience, even if it is on paper more full on than yours. You know, like we had a big reaction to cheaters the other night. A lot of people, we did an episode on cheaters. People have cheated on their partner. And a lot of people had a lot of anger towards these people. How can they talk this way and blah, 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 blah. Um, how could they do that to someone? But at the end of the day, all these people are, are a group of people who've made a mistake. They've made a mistake and they've hurt someone in the process and then they've owned it and they've gone through the process of trying to heal it, trying to heal themselves, and they've gone therapy and done a whole lot of stuff to try and get through it. And um, I feel like saying to the audience, hang on, before you judge these people, have you never made a mistake in your whole life? And is there not something you can learn from someone who's made a huge mistake and how they've dealt with it? And that's what empathy is. I think a lot of people confuse empathy with sympathy. It's easy to sympathize with someone in a wheelchair. Oh, their experience must be so bad. You know, they think they're being empathetic, but they're not. They're being sympathetic. But when it's something that cuts close to the bone, 
then the judgment comes out real easy. Whereas empathy is about using your own experiences to try and transport into their shoes. Remembering that time when you were othered for some way, and that could have just been being picked on by two kids at school, but you know what that feeling feels like. Now, you may not be a Chinese Australian being othered for the coronavirus, and that's a very different experience, but you have probably in your life at some point in time felt left out, felt picked on, felt something. And, and that's what empathy is, is putting yourself in their shoes going, oh my God, I had that feeling once before and I can understand what it's like, even though it's slightly different and that sucks or whatever. And um, I feel like at the moment we're judging people's experiences too much. And it's, if you've had a really full on thing, then they deserve our, you know, our empathy. But if you have this lesser thing, well, you need to be able to get through that and get on with life and blah, blah, blah. It's fascinating that we have this delineation between reading about someone or, or seeing a post or somewhere or a news article about someone that's so different from us, we we can kind of dehumanize them. But it seems that uh, particularly Twitter's really bad for this, how quickly we can dehumanize somebody and yet still be affected by their their opinion on something like, I don't know, for example, I'm, I'm a Chinese Australian, you know, I'm my greatest, greatest grandfather came here in the 1860s. I am like 12th generation Australian and you're, you know, saying it's my fault and stop eating bats or whatever and some horrible shit was being said to you. And yet it's, it's so easy to disassociate the fact that that person's a human being on the other side of that. In your opinion, how do you think that we as an Australian community can reverse some of the damage that this dehumanizing or othering has been doing to our community? I think that we need to care about people. We need to have genuine conversations with people. You know, you go to a, a shop now and someone walks in with a pair of headphones on, you know, that they can't be bothered taking out. They pay with a card. They don't even look at a person. I was talking to actually Rob Mills the other day and, and he said to me this idea about cash. He said the fact that cash has disappeared now, there's this touch which has gone from our life. We're unaware of anyone but ourselves. And I feel like being aware is a really, really important start. Being aware of the people around you, you know, that I caught a plane the other morning at seven o'clock in the morning. And if you want to see a group of people who are completely unaware of anyone else, try catching a, a plane at seven o'clock in the morning because people are kicking you out of the way to get on a plane that's going to leave at the same time. You know what I mean? Like you get no advantage of getting on ahead, but people are just focused on their own little world, their little life. Whereas I think that for a moment, put your phone down, be aware of the people that are around you. And when you want to have conversation, people always say to me, how do you get people to open up? Well, really it's about caring, giving a shit about this person. And um, I often talk about this idea of interviewing with love. When that person sits in front of me, I really, really care for them. I'm really on their side. I really want them to do well. I don't want to trip them up or trick them or make them look stupid. And um, I feel like if that energy is brought into our life a little bit more, that we're on the side of people rather than looking for ways to be better than them, that will make a huge difference. By doing what you're doing, and I can only extrapolate from my own experience with you, using that fantastic tool, what is it? A cinematographer invented it. Earl Morris uses it. What's it called? Interatron. Well, his is called the Interatron. My one's called something slightly different. But essentially, it's a ripoff of the Interatron, which Errol Morris uses, the, the filmmaker. Errol Morris um, is a documentary maker. And 
I'm just trying to think what he did more most recently. That my favorite film of his is called Tabloid, where he interviewed a um, an old beauty queen in America who who married a Mormon, and and then he he left her, and then so she tracked him down and kidnapped him for a sex romp, and it became a, uh, a huge tabloid story in the UK. He's done some incredible films. Errol Morris, check him out. But what he does is he his is done with a video camera where he'll film them and he'll sit in a completely other room. All right. and, and a camera will film him and he'll talk down the lens. And so I use one that's a bit more unlike a periscope. A mirror's in it and you look into a, a mirror and it reflects my face in front of the lens of the camera. And you look at the lens of the camera, but you're actually looking at my face. Yeah. And I can see you through a series of mirror reflections. People have seen it. They saw it on The Last Dance with Michael Jordan. They saw it on The Social Dilemma. It was very famously used on The Social Dilemma to great effect, where you suddenly get this feeling of these testimonials, these straight connecting with the eyeballs, emotional uh, monologues from people, which that's how it comes up in the edit. But all they're doing is they're trying to explain empathically to somebody who's literally looking at them in the eye, I don't know, I'd never let my kids touch Snapchat or whatever. And that's the, the machine you use. So I guess what I'm trying to work towards, Kirk, is your it's a plugged-in, very, very focused connection. There's been a few times during this conversation where I've tried to ask you something a little tricky. I'll break gaze because I'm sometimes I get a little, you know, reluctant to ask a question that I know is a little curly. You've obviously had a lot more practice at it. I can't imagine, man. You've like your last two seasons. What you've got amputees, families of missing persons, people who live in public housing, uh, firefighters, people who've killed someone. How do you look after yourself? How do you? I mean, I made one documentary about suicide prevention. The amount of support that I had to have just to get through those couple of weeks was intense. How do you protect yourself from this flood of, of energy? You spoke about that, this flood of energy coming into you that then makes a great TV show, but you're the sponge, man. You're the one that's at the end of that, that conversation. How do you look after yourself? Well, the first thing is that I don't get very emotional in interviews because I feel like my role is to help the person get out their story. So if I get too emotional in it, if I get too caught up in my own personal emotions, then it's not helping them. So I'm actually working really, really hard, listening very, very intently to what they're saying, trying to understand, trying to help them get their story out. So I feel like in some respects that slightly detaches me in a bit. But when you empathize with someone, it's not feeling sorry for them. And I think when we often get, I get very emotional in films, like very, very emotional in films, because I'm just going along for the ride. I'm letting it wash over me. Whereas in this instance, I'm not trying to feel sorry for them or feel for them or anything like that. I'm trying to help them express. So in those moments during the interviews, I don't, I don't get too emotional. That's my best way of trying to explain it. But afterwards, definitely. Sometimes afterwards, I feel the weight of it. And I just do what anyone else does, well, should do, is debrief it. I debrief it with my team. And, you know, because for every full-on moment in it, there's some amazing moment too. You know, and what, what I really love about our show is that it's not just all doom and gloom. It's not people just crying. We actually don't get that much tears. It's, it's people expressing really honestly. I'm trying to get authenticity more so than deep, you know, emotion. So for everything that someone says that's quite heavy, they also say something that's very, very inspiring, quite amazing, some incredible learning, like, wow, I can't believe that they've managed to navigate through that. And isn't that incredible? I, I feel like there's so many gifts that you get given by the people that in some respects that covers for the heavy stuff. But yes, I debrief my team and I have a psych that I debrief too. I also have a coach, uh, 
you know, a life coach or a personal coach, which is I use in a very different way from my, um, from my psych. And I see her, she's in America and I only have a digital chat with her. And um, that's someone else who's just in my corner. You know, you often hear about sports people being a team around them. And I feel like it's very similar when you're a freelancer like me or someone who's, you know, doing their own thing. I have a really good lawyer. I have a really good accountant. And um, I have a coach and I have a psych. And those people in my corner, they're on my side and I can talk these things out. And then I have a really strong team. Some of the guys I work with, I mentioned before, Josh Schmidt, you know, we've worked together for 20 years. So these are people know you intimately and know you deeply and they're there to back you up too well look i would i always say to people like you're the ceo of your own enterprise and you just mentioned all these people mate that sounds like you've got the financial department the hr department you've got the strategy department you might call it a life coach but other companies were like no no no, that person all they do is work on strategy i meet with them once a month and we talk about which way we're heading it's fine you know (laughs) it's and and that's that's who you are and that's that's what you need to do And, and things incredibly for you going astonishing well it's such it's a you talked about authenticity we're clearly craving this authenticity you've been picked up in a number of countries how does that feel to be picked up as a format in a number of different countries producing their own stories telling their own stories that only their community can tell yeah well that's cool it's very very cool it's that i think it's in there's 32 different versions of the show that exist around the world at the moment which is which is really cool and what's the most exciting is that, and when I speak to the people who make the show overseas, is they always go, oh, well, what questions did you ask? And, and I go, well, you could use our questions if you want, but that's not the point of the show. This is about getting a snapshot of the people in your country from the questions that the people in your country want to understand. And when they get their head around what this format is and then they ask their own questions, like in Italy they asked African, I think, refugees, one of the questions I want to know is, can you get a suntan? Which I thought was a really hilarious Italian question. I can imagine Italians like being nice and suntanned and having this thing. And they're looking at these people going, well, can you get a suntan? That was a very important question to them. Now, it's not something we would necessarily ask here, but I thought that was, you know, great. That was what they wanted to know. And then there's other groups that exist. In Spain, for example, they did a group on gypsies. And we just don't have that here. But that was what actually inspired us to do an episode on um, carnies and show people. Like, I was like, who's our version of gypsies or who's our traveling people in Australia? And that was like, okay, these traveling show people. So it's quite cool to see the other groups that, that happen on the other side of the world and think, well, actually, how can that inspire our show? Okay, just before we get to the last bit of the chat with Kirk, I might need to play an ad in a second to help us keep the lights on. But whether or not the ad plays, I just did want to let you know about another episode of this show featuring Sonia Pemberton. Uh, She is another documentary filmmaker, a science communicator, and has made some fascinating documentaries, particularly about vitamins and vaccination. Uh, It's episode 288 of this show, and as always, vaccination truths are fascinating to listen to no matter where in the world you are. Here's a little taste. With the vaccine issue, you know, we literally have sample sizes of millions of people across the world. And we know they save lives. We know they don't cause harm in the vast majority. And I'm talking 20 million to one kind of ratio. Now, is there one in 20 million people who have a side effect? I'm talking about a relatively serious side effect. It's possible because we 
we can't measure one in 20 million with any real authority. We don't have the studies that can work it out at that level. We're working out the causation of the rare but real, and there are a few real side effects around vaccines, but they are so rare and for the most part so small that they don't come close to the benefits that we get from vaccinating. So that's Sonia Pemberton, uh, episode 288 of the show. Check it out. Just scroll back through the podcast feed and you'll find it there. So we're either going to go back to Kirk Docker here or we might hear an ad. Let's see what happens. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There was the ad. Now we're getting back to the show. So, Sydney notwithstanding, hopefully by the time this comes out, we're recording this at the moment where we're back into masks and we're back into, you know, no singing. For everybody else, let's say if you're listening, what's Kirk Docker, master interviewer, thousands of connections achieved with other human beings through questions and answers. What's your top three for the next conversation that we have either with a stranger or someone we love to connect in a better way? Hmm. All right, see, Chad. Well, the first thing I want to say is you need to get rid of lazy questions out of your life. The laziest question is, oh, what's been happening? What have you been up to? Because I feel like that question means that the person who has to answer it suddenly has to entertain you with something interesting they did. Or, and if you're not entertaining, well, if the person who asks the question, you're going to get bored and ask and move on to somewhere else. So I feel like that's a really challenging question um, to ask. So try and ask something that's actually, I try and when I meet someone for the first time, I try and find something. It's not an icebreaker as, as such, but it shows, I talk about something which shows we're similar. I, find, I try and find something as quick as I can that shows we have something in common. You and me talked about bicycles. Exactly. Exactly. We talked about bikes, right? <laughs> about something you wore. And, and you can often notice it with people, um, where they've come from or what they've been doing. My dad, I didn't really talk about my parents early on, and I think a lot of where I get my skills from is also from my parents. Uh, my dad was a Kentucky tour guide in the 70s, and my mum somehow managed to tame him. Well, he might argue otherwise. But, you know, when I see my dad walk, you know, he stays at my place sometimes in Redfern. I've got this bar out the front that I've built, and he'll sit there and people walk past. He'll just start asking them stuff that's in their shopping bag. And he'll have something that you can talk about. He often asks, actually, too, where someone's from. Now, I know people get very funny about asking where you're from, but his reason for asking it is chances are he's been there. 
So, and if he's been there, it means that he has something that he can connect with. He can show, hang on, you and I, we're the same in this small. Um, so it's about finding that thing with someone that you go, oh my God, we're the same in some small way. But so I always, I always feel like that's good. It's finding something in common. I do ask people what they're, you know, what they've been up to that day, but I actually really am interested in the answer. And what I'm listening for is something that I can then hone in on that resonates with me, that we can have something in mutual, not looking for that person just to entertain me. That's super cool. And I guess, you know, I guess, I don't know, the other thing is like, don't be afraid. It's going to be okay. They're, they're another human being and they're just trying to get through the day. They're just, you know, hoping the next toilet's not too far away. They're hoping that, you know, there's enough dinner in the fridge. They're hoping that, you know. That's get, right. They, Try not to talk about coronavirus so much. <laughs> it's the most boring conversation. You know what? A, a good task I often give some people I work with to do is try and start a conversation with someone that you've never met. Just when you walk down the street, and it could be the person who serves you coffee, it could be just someone who's walking past you. It's very easy if someone has a dog. That's a very easy one to start a conversation with. If someone's got something weird, I saw a guy the other day had this weird yellow thing hanging from his keys. And I said, hey, what's that yellow thing hanging from your keys? He goes, oh, I work a lot with boats, and if the keys fall out, that's what makes it you know, float there, whatever. The conversation only lasted for a minute or so, but I was just curious about that thing, and I just wanted to know what the thing was. And I asked it with care and love and not from a place of judgment, and he answered it and we had this chat. And it happens all the time if you want it to. Now, it's tiring to do it, but if you want to get better at it, try it once a day. Start an interaction with someone you've never met. But what do you get out of that interaction? How did you walk away? What did you feel inside your body after the lights went green and you went your separate ways? How did you feel inside your body after you'd had that connection with another stranger? I feel great because I'm connected to someone. I'm not just focused on me and my own life the whole time. And um, it's just broadening my skills of being able to talk to people because who knows when you need to be able to talk to someone you don't know, have anything in common with. Who knows if you need to be able to build some rapport with someone you've never met. Who knows if I'd got some amazing story out of that or if I'd met someone that, that could be useful to me or who knows. There's any myriad of things that come out of a, of a random interaction. Kirk, I really could talk to you all afternoon. I'm so grateful for your time and I, I mean it from the bottom of my heart, mate. I've, I have been interviewed by a lot of people and I have done a gajillion interviews and the time that we spent together in that studio at the ABC, I'm, I'll am i forever remember it as one of the, the <laughs> most connected experiences that I've had and I think the amount of care that you put into our chat is so evident in every episode of your show that I watch and I'm really grateful that you could give a shit to make it because it's fucking important. It's a really important show for our community and I'm really grateful you do it. Thanks, man. Thank you. And I'm thanks that you uh, enjoyed the experience because I actually I find it quite difficult talking to people who have done a lot of interviews because they, like you said, they, they know the matrix. Yeah. You know, they, they've been through this experience before. So you, you are battling that. You're trying to get them past where they give you these responses which they know are good or what you need and to just be themselves. And um, to your credit, you know, you were yourself. I, I felt like I saw a side of you I had never seen before and I really, really appreciated that. Thank you, mate. I appreciate it very much. Keep making it. Make it for as long as I let you. <laughs> I know you will. <laughs> I can't wait to see what else you do. I can't wait to see what else you make. Please don't let it just be this because you come from such an important place. Whatever else you do, I, I, I can't wait to see. I think it's going to be great. Have fun with a puppy. Oh, what's the dog's name? Frank. We have a dog called Frank. There we go. And there it is. <laughs> 
There we go. I'll see you later, Kirk. Thanks heaps, mate. All right, so ladies and gentlemen, there it is. That was Kirk Docker. You can find him and his show on the ABC iView platform. Uh, he's also on Wednesday nights at the moment on the ABC, but he's also every episode of You Can't Ask That is upstreaming. All six seasons are upstreaming right now on iView, and it's a fascinating and very interesting show and well worth exploring. And you know what? I think it's really important to watch a show like that makes you feel, to be honest, it makes you feel safer because then you initially feel kind of reluctant and a bit worried and, you know, maybe scared of strange people and strange things and people you don't understand. But once you watch this show, you feel like, oh, actually, that that feels a lot better. And um, it's a really freaking good show. It's often used in educational uh, situations, high schools and the like, and for good reason because, you know, we're all humans and Kirk is a fascinating human being and a very talented man at humanizing and i love him for it brilliant you can't ask that get amongst it thank you very much for your support for listening to the show i can't i really can't thank you enough if you do want to support the show if there's any way that you could possibly help me it would be tell someone about the show Uh, that and leave a rating and a review of the show that really really helps me and um if you want to support me in other ways you can listen to idle australians which is on thursdays that's me and james matheson what are we talking about this week Oh, we're talking about something very nasty that happened in Brisbane. Yeah, that's right. Um, But there's an interesting take on it, but we'll talk about it. If you do want to email me, it's pretty easy. Send osheremail at gmail.com. So, yeah, thanks heaps for being here. See you on Thursday with Jimmy. Take care. Have a good week. Until we speak next time, sleep well and dream of beautiful things.